60 women, I was told, attended the uh, women's retreat this week. And woohoo! Yep. I actually, uh, <laughs> I actually said on Tuesday to the, to the women's staff, I'm like, how about if I just stopped by and said hello? And they were all like, no. <laughs> Like, that'd be weird. I'm like, I just want to just say, you know, I just, I just want to encourage them and just let them know how just, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. That's exactly what they're like. No, you could, you could do that on Sunday. So I was blessed to hear that, um, that as Emily mentioned, there is strong community being built. Yeah, yeah, CC. And it just, I tell you, it's an and last week, 20-some folks who were newer to our church joined us at our home to connect with each other and staff. And it's just, it's just been an enormous encouraging thing to see you guys connect with each other, um, even as you pursue the mission of our church. Um, so uh, today, as we continue our series, Follow Me, uh, I, I found a, a, an article story that, that could uh, be described as only in America. Only in America. Uh, a New Jersey couple is calling out Taco Bell for what they say is consumer fraud. Nelson and Joanna Strella were each craving a chalupa craving box. Advertise as Chalupa Supreme, a five-layer burrito, crunchy taco, cinnamon twist, and a medium, a medium drink, all for $5.00 when they visited their local Taco Bell in Middlesex in May 2018. But their bill came out to $12.18 before taxes, a price that management explained by referencing a fine print disclaimer. The disclaimer stating prices may vary did indeed appear in the TV ad, but in white text, one sixteenth of the size of the font used to advertise the price, obscured on a gray background according to a lawsuit filled by the couple. They claim losses in the form of time wasted driving and the gasoline expended in the amount of $2.18. While it is $2 to my clients, the lawyer says, it's hundreds of millions of Taco Bell, says the Australia's attorney, Douglas Schwartz. He says he's talked to people in 25 states who are similarly misled by Taco Bell offers. The Australia's lawsuit cites New Jersey's consumer fraud statute, which notes disclaimers must be in a type size and a style that is clear and conspicuous relative to the other type sizes and styles used in the advertisement. In other words, it's against the law to tell someone you're going to charge them $5 in big bold print and then take it away with a fine print disclaimer, says Schwartz. A rep for Taco... <laughs> right on, says the guy who's been an attorney for like 40 years. In the city of Chicago, by the way, okay. And rep for Taco Bell says, our advertisements are truthful and accurate, and we will defend this case vigorously. Originally filed in state superior, superior court, the case was moved to federal court at Taco Bell's request. Only in America. Here's one thing Jesus never did. Jesus never hid the real cost of following him. There's never a point where Jesus turned to the crowds and said, hey, if you follow me, you will have life and have it abundantly. And then turned to his disciples, people who are really serious about following him, and says, well, by the way, 
if you want to follow me, you gotta, you gotta die. The, the, the call to Jesus was to, he says, anybody can follow me. Doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter, doesn't matter if you've been at the gates of hell, anybody can follow me, but if you follow me, here's the deal, you have to go all in. You have to go all in. This isn't part-time relationship, this isn't what's convenient. You have to go all in. And people ask me all the time, why does Jesus insist that we go all in? Because Following Jesus doesn't work if you don't go all in. Hey, well, why is that, Peter? Colossians 1 says that we've been created by him and for him. That means that we've been created in such a way that the things that we all long for, like meaning, identity, significance, purpose, will be found in who? In, in him. All the good things that God gives us, like sex and relationship and success and children and parenting, all of these good gifts that God gives us were supposed to be pointers to the ultimate giver. We weren't created to sit with the gifts and go, ah, I've arrived. We were created so that those things would stir within us a desire to ask, who is the giver of these gifts? As C.S. Lewis so famously said, if we find ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were created, what, for another world. This thing doesn't work if you and I don't go all in because it is going in all in that we come to recognize I've been created by him. Here's the thing, though, you guys. I've been pastor for 30-some years. I have never seen a single person come to this place of recognizing this truth without going through some things. It's when your marriage falls apart. It's when your career blows up. It's when he or she breaks off the engagement. It's when your children walk away from Jesus. It's when your health deteriorates. It's when... Anybody know what I'm talking about? Because it's when you come to that place that you realize, you give live services, Jesus is my all in all, but we look to a thing, thousand things smaller than Jesus. And we finally come to that place of realizing he's it. He's it. See, we don't realize that Jesus is all that we need until Jesus is all that we have. So many of us will live much of our lives never knowing the satisfaction and the joy of being with Jesus because we will play at this Christianity thing until God gets a hold of us. If this is your testimony, will you, will you clap so that we kind of, yeah, this is your testimony. See, see, yeah, yeah. I, I, there, it, there's some of us that, are, that have yet to, yet to get to that place of what I call brokenness and uh, coming to the end of ourselves. But in love, God brings us to that place. And, and that's when we begin to be awakened to this truth of following Jesus and what this means. Yeah, yeah. 
We are talking about following Jesus, and we've said that a follower of Jesus, a disciple is someone who follows Jesus. And no, let me be clear, we don't do this perfectly all the time. We don't do this, we don't do this perfectly all the time. We, we, we are prone to wander. Thank you for that. So following Jesus is not a perfect path, as all of us could testify, but it is, it is us following him with this commitment to this truth that says, you lead and I follow. You're all I have, okay? But a disciple is someone who also doesn't follow you, but invites others to follow Jesus. From the very beginning, being a disciple and making disciples we're to be integrally linked. And, 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 and Jesus has been talking, we've been talking about this, this, that Jesus clearly commanded us in Matthew 28. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. And then lastly, a follower, a disciple of someone who follows Jesus in community, which is something we'll pick back up in January after the season of Advent. Um, because of time, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna need to just jump right in, in into this. Okay, I, I brought this uh, I brought this board out. Can you guys see way in the back uh, the board? Is that you, Michael Emerson, sitting in the balcony? Okay, I can't really see. Okay. I've said for several weeks now the gospel rightly understood makes discipleship or disciple making a normative experience. It's because we don't understand the gospel that we don't understand making disciples as being normative. Here's, here's a, if you remember from last week, um, so here's us, okay? And here's how many of us understand the Christian life. Many of us understand the Christian life as we are saved by grace, but we have to earn God's acceptance. We have to earn God's love. Any, any, anybody know what that feels like? So, so here's, here's us, and then here is, here is, let me use different color modulars. Here is, here is Jesus, here's God. And so we live with the sense of I have to perform to accept, uh, to, to, to earn God's acceptance, God's love. And by the way, if Christianity says that you have to earn God's love, it's the worst of distortions. The fundamental truth of Christianity has nothing to do with earning God's love, and we'll get to that. But here's why many of us function. We, we, we say we are saved by grace, but we, we don't quite know that we're secure in Christ. So we have all these things that we do, right? Spiritual disciplines, praying, fasting, worshiping, serving, all of these things we do. And, and the reason why we do these things is so that we can get to God because we're not secure. My performance determines my relationship with God. If I have a good week, God answers my prayer. If I have a bad week, God, God is somewhat distant from me. Uh, Peter, but doesn't the Bible says we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Grace isn't opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace isn't opposed to I work out my, grace is opposed to I gotta earn God. And in this in this dynamic, the primary question is what? How am I doing? See, there's some of you sitting here today, and the only question that you're asking yourself is, how was my week? How, was my, how did I do this week with God? I didn't do so good on Monday. I did okay on Tuesday. Is God pleased with me? This is the all-consuming question. And here's the thing you got to know. In this, this doesn't reproduce. This doesn't reproduce. Do you get that? This is solely focused on you, and it's impossible to reproduce. Now, what does the gospel say? Here's the amazing thing. If this resonates with you, the gospel says what? 
Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And when we place our faith in him, our punishment is taken away being born by him. And we are given the righteousness of Christ. So that the Bible says, if you are in Christ, you are hidden with Christ in God. In Christ, we are a new creation. All of these, Ephesians 1, we are seated with Christ. Where are you right now? You are in Christ. Hello, somebody. We don't, we don't work towards being righteous. We are righteous in Christ. We don't work towards being holy. We are already holy in Christ. It's not about earning. It's about awareness. Awareness of what you have and what you already are. Are you with me, church? It's about becoming aware of the truth that is already true of us. The main prayer, and CC and I talk about it all the time, the most powerful prayer you could pray yourself is, God, help me to see me as you see me. That's, real tough. That's your struggle today. You don't see you as God sees you. Because God sees you and he says, you're perfect, you're holy, you're already righteous. And in this paradigm, the question is, how am I doing? In this paradigm, the question becomes, God, how can you be so good? We sang about this morning. God, how can you be so amazing? How can you be so good? And in this paradigm, in this paradigm, okay, this ultimately then leads to this. We realize the spiritual disciplines are important, but they're not ways to earn God's acceptance because we already are accepted. They are ways of becoming more like Jesus. And the ultimate result to become more like Jesus is the fundamental question isn't how am I doing? The question that becomes, how am I doing loving those God has already placed in my life? Your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, your school classmates. Do you get that? Do you see why this is constantly reproducing? In other words, it's, and this right here stays stuck in its own self-centered, self-absorbed, how am I doing? This is why we talk about the gospel all the time. It's the only thing that releases you and me out of ourselves to go, am I making disciples? Is this good news? Is this good? So the so question is, do you see yourself as God sees you? See, see, and wish you remind us every single Sunday. This is the songs that we sing. Who are we? We are already in Christ. It's about awareness, awareness, awareness of what I already have. It's not earning. It's about awareness. It's about awareness. When we realize that, we realize that making disciples, loving those that God has placed around, John 13, 34, 35, loving those around us is a natural byproduct of being loved by Christ. Are you and I making disciples? Are we inviting others to follow Jesus? That's where we turn today. Matthew 28, we've been, we've been sitting on Matthew 28. I've been on this for three weeks, and today we're going to conclude Matthew 28, okay? And we're talk about following Jesus, being intricately linked to inviting others to follow Jesus. And yes, you guys, the operative word is invite. 
Okay? It's not force. It's not manipulate. It's not shove. It's invite. It's an invitation for folks to follow Jesus as we follow Jesus. Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. It's not go and be disciples. It's not enough for you and me to love Jesus, serve Jesus, follow Jesus. He says the goal is you invite others to love Jesus, follow yeah. Jesus. Truth be told, most of us, we've read this verse, therefore go and be disciples. No, no, it doesn't end with you. It doesn't end with you. And by the way, making disciples, it's hard. It's hard work. It takes a long time and it's messy. Maybe that's why... So few churches do it and do it well. So much easier for churches to go, look at all these programs, look at all the things that we're doing. We are, no, no, no. Making disciples takes a long time. And it's hard work, man. Whew, it's hard, hard work. Verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. There are two commands in this famous text. The first is make disciples, and the second is behold or look. In between these are three participles. They seem like verbs. Participles, which are uh, uh, action verbs, if you will, that give flesh out to what make disciples is. And so if the command is make disciples, the three words go and baptize and teach are ways that we go about making disciples. Are you with me so far? So let's look at them and see how it is that Jesus calls us to make disciples as we follow example. First is Discipleship is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. The word go has a sense of as you're going. Many apply, misapplied this to think that it's about going overseas, but it's not about a destination. We talked about two weeks ago. It's not about a destination. It's about going across the street as well as going overseas. A lifestyle means that discipleship making is something that you and I do every single day in the normal course of our lives. We wake up at 5, 36 o'clock whenever you wake up in the morning that we have coffee and then we take our train or go to, you know, cars to go to work if we work. And while eight hours, nine hours a day in the office and whatever we're there, we come home and throughout the entire course of the day, making disciples is something that we look at as being normative. It's not realize, it's realizing that there isn't this secular spiritual divide. Discipleship is something that we do in church and then everything else we do at home and work is something else. No, discipleship is about realizing that everything that we do is for the sake of the glory of God. It's about recognizing that whether we're at work or play or our homes, classes, wherever we are, we are constantly saying, what are some ways that we could be making disciples in my ordinary, everyday life, right? And this was the way of Jesus. You read the Gospels and Jesus looks at discipleship as something that he is doing every day as he's living with his disciples. To Jesus, discipleship was, we talked about two weeks ago, life on life. It was life on life. It wasn't a class, it wasn't a lecture, it wasn't information impartation. It was about doing life with his disciples in the course of everyday, ordinary, everyday life. He invited disciples into his life, and whatever he did, he was discipling them. You see the Gospels, you see all these snapshots of Jesus doing this that you and I miss. I said this two weeks ago. Do you know why we have the Lord's Prayer today? We have the Lord's Prayer today because... 11, uh, Luke 11, 1. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, 
And as he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Disciples are doing everyday life with Jesus. And you know what they're catching? They're catching Jesus' what? Prayer life. They're just spending time when they realize he, he prays. In the normal course of every life, sometimes he gets away to the mountain by himself. Sometimes he is among us, but he's praying. And disciples are seeing his prayer life and seeing how that makes a difference in his life. And so one day they're watching him pray. They go, we got to ask him about this thing. Teach us how to pray. Jesus goes, this is how you pray. Our Father who art in heaven. So let me ask you a question. Who in your life is watching you in your prayer life? to learn what it means to follow Jesus? Who is, who is watching you and seeing how your communion with the Father makes a difference in the way you go about your life? Is anybody catching that? This doesn't have to be that complicated, you guys. You're going, what does that even look like? You know what this looks like? Discipling someone could be as simple as praying with them. Hello, somebody. It could be simple as inviting some people to pray, praying with them. If I asked you, how'd you learn how to pray? Most of you would be like, what? Somebody modeled it for me. Can I tell you what? So I come from a tradition of praying out loud. I'm not even talking about, there's this thing called Kido, which is like everybody in the church. Man, this is one of my cultural heritage that I love. You th- if, if you're not accustomed to it and you sit in it, you think people are like mad, but they're not mad. Just like your pastor's not mad when I get excited. I'm excited. I'm not mad. It's everybody. I remember the first time I had to pray out loud. Not in a group. I'm like, like literally like not just pray out so somebody could hear you. And I was in this, I was in this Christian environment where it seemed like everybody played, prayed better than me. Does anybody know what that's like? Everybody, so the thing that I hated the most when I first became a Christian is when we were all in a group prayer, you know, and so the leader said, let's just go around and pray, right? And I, and I wanted to be the first to go because here's what happened if you were the last to go. First of all, if I'm the last to go, I'm not even paying attention, okay? Because the whole thing, I'm thinking about what? What I'm going to what? Pray, right? Sometimes they're just praying about And what would happen inevitably is when I'm going, oh, that's a good prayer. That dude that's going second prays that prayer. I'm going, gosh darn it, I gotta come up with another prayer. Whole time, I don't even, I'm not even thinking about what prayer is. I'm thinking about what am I gonna say? How am I? Somebody noticed this, one of my older brothers. And he came to me and he said, Peter, can we pray together? I just spent time praying together. And he modeled for me by praying together how to pray. Are you praying with anybody? As a simple way of disciple, whoa. See, all of a sudden, it's not this big disciple. No, are you praying with him? Parents! Are you praying with your children? Are they catching your, okay, I gotta keep going. Well, not only prayer life, but, 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 but you also notice when you read the gospel, Jesus is constantly quoting scripture. Always. He's constantly going, it's written, it's written, it's written. If you cut Jesus, he would have bled scripture. On the cross, he shouts, why God, my God, why have you forsaken? Into the last dying breath, my God, my God, that's Psalm 22. Do you know who caught that? Peter did. 
As he hung out with Jesus, he's noticing how Jesus is constantly quoting scripture. So this amazing thing happens in Acts chapter 2 when he preaches his first sermon and 3,000 people come to know him. This is how he opens his prayer. Peter said, and Joel, Acts chapter 2, and this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He's quoting literally from the minor prophet Joel. Scripture in his sermon. Then later on he says, and David said, Psalm 23. And David says, Psalm 110. Peter caught that. So let me ask you a question. Is anybody watching your life to learn love of Scripture? Is anybody watching? Again, this isn't like, this isn't like complicated. Are you reading Scripture with anybody? One of the things I loved and enjoyed the most when I was a college student is when somebody came to know the Lord, because I led them to the Lord, is just reading the New Testament with them. I know, I know much about the Bible. I know more than, much more than anybody else. But I said, let's read the scripture together and set aside some time. If you have any questions, ask. We just set aside time as we read scripture together. And these brothers and sisters caught love of scripture. I mean, I could keep going of disciples. How did the disciples learn radical service? Maybe it was watching Jesus wrap a towel around his waist and washing their feet. How did disciples learn to care for the least and the, and the marginalized? Maybe it was watching Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well or touching the leper when he didn't have to heal, touch them to heal. Maybe it was watching Jesus in the way that he went about his ordinary everyday life that they caught. Maybe you teaching Jesus in radical service and care for the poor means that the opportunities that we have coming up that Ruth and Daryl talked about, you don't just go by yourself, you invite someone with you. And then you debrief afterwards and talk about it. What'd you think? See, 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 discipleship isn't this massive thing, is it? No, it's about you doing your ordinary everyday life and inviting people to walk with you. The discipleship, just real quick, life on life discipleship, I think it has three components, ready? And, and, and women, I think you guys were there, uh, you heard this, so this is like repeat for you, but for the rest of us that weren't, life on life, real quick, because we're going to flesh this out in the coming weeks, it's relational. Please, 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 do not, do not, do not pursue discipleship relationships and turn them into projects. It's not loving. Can I get an amen? It's not loving. Please don't treat people as projects. If that's you, Christian, stay away. Stay away. Nobody wants to be treated as projects. It's about genuine, authentic, mutual care, mutual trust, and mutual love. Secondly, it's intentional. What do I mean? It can't be sporadic and, and just kind of spontaneous. Discipleship relationships with life on life is one in which you go, we're going to meet every week, every other week. It's intentionality. For short term, long term, it's intentional. It also has a component of accountability. Accountability is where you have someone speak the truth and love to you. Truth is I will be honest with you no matter what. Love is I will love you no matter what. And by the way, Christian, truth should never travel faster than love. Truth should never travel faster than love. You know, one of the things, one of the phrases that I just, bleh, is the phrase brutal honesty. Please stop saying that. Please stop saying, I just need to be brutally honest. Just be honest. You don't have to be brutally honest. You know what I'm talking about? Because here's the thing that I know and I see when somebody goes, I don't want to, brutally honest, it's, it's oftentimes more brutal then it is honest. Yeah, 
Truth should never travel faster than love. But all of us need people. All of us, right, Dan, need people in our lives who will speak truth and love to us. Otherwise, you can't grow, people. You can't. Listen, if you are dating somebody with somebody, the first thing you should ask them is this. Who is keeping you accountable? And if they say nobody, run. Can I say that again? Run. Do you know why? Because that individual has no desire to grow. And they will remain immature for a long time. None of us in here has the capacity to be set aware of everything that is uh, wrong about us. We can't see ourselves. We need other people's and other eyes to go, what about that? What about that? What about that? What about that? In the context of I will never leave you nor forsake you, I'm going to speak truth to you. So identify some areas, church, in your life. Emotional health, maybe. It's your racial identity. Maybe it's parenting, father, mother. Maybe it's marriage. Identify some area in your life where you can say, is anybody further along than I am that I can ask, invite into intentional relationships with? And if you go, I don't know anybody in this church, I'm going to tell you something. We love playing matchmaker. If you are saying, Peter, I need to grow in this area, can you tell me? Ask any one of the staff, and there's a wealth of godly men and women who've been there and done that, who will be more than glad to spend time with you. And lastly, it's missional. It's about reproduction. I am at this place in my life, I'm almost 50, where if it doesn't lead to reproduction, I don't want to be a part of it. When people ask me to come and speak, I go, are you reproducing? They go, no, I don't go. People say, can you do this? I go, is this going to lead to multiplication? If they say, no, I just don't waste my time, you guys. Think about this. If Jesus had not multiplied, none of us would be here. If disciples had not multiplied, none of us would be here. Multiplication. Intentional, relational, missional. I love uh, this, this uh, passage in 2 Timothy, where Paul says to Timothy, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be called to teach others. He says, Timothy, what I learned from Jesus, I taught you. Now what you learned from me, you teach some other people. And what they learned from you, make sure they teach others. Discipleship. Discipleship is a lifestyle. Secondly, discipleship is a communal endeavor. Communal endeavor. Where do you get that, Peter? Part what Jesus says, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see the disciples doing just that, by the way, in the book of Acts, where baptism is administered consistently. Disciples are like, Jesus said to do it, we go and do it. Pretty simple. So I have a question for you. Have you been baptized? I'm not talking about like, I was, I was baptized as a baby. Well, I don't want to get into the infant baptism or adult baptism right now because it's, you know. But here's what I would say. If you are baptized and you have no idea what it meant, I think you should be baptized again. What's the point of doing something that you have no significance of what it meant? Jesus said baptize, they're baptizing. What is baptizing? Listen, baptism is not required for salvation. We are saved by, by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. Clear. Baptism is just an outward symbol of an inward reality. 
So what does it symbolize? Two things, real quick. I'll be quick with the first one because it doesn't really apply to what we're talking about. Baptism, first and foremost, an identification with the person and work of Christ in his death and resurrection. When a person goes underwater, they're saying, they're declaring, I have died to my old self and its old ways. And they would come out of the water, they're saying, I have risen to new life in Christ. And so therefore, baptism is, I am swearing allegiance to Christ Jesus as my Lord and Savior. You know what baptism is? It's a public declaration of I'm not ashamed of the gospel or his name. The gospel is I don't care if people point to me and go, remember when you were like that? Remember when you were like that? The gospel is I have received forgiveness and I am made new. I'm not who I want to be, but I'm not who I once was. It's a public declaration of this is who I am in Christ. And some of y'all need to sign up for baptism for next year. Okay, enough about that. Baptism, though, it's not just identification with Christ. It's an identification, check this out, with the body of Christ. Do you know that in the early church, people were not baptized until five years were spent as a part of the community? In other words, people would be like, I want to be baptized. People are like, no, 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 no. And the reason is because they wanted to make sure that you understood this aspect of the Christian life. Look into what Paul says. And Western American Christians don't point. First Corinthians 12, 12. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its parts may form only one body, so it is with Christ. For all were baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and all were given the spirit to drink. Baptism is what? He says, when you get baptized, when you become a Christian, you automatically, in the spiritual reality, get joined to a body, a community of faith called the church. You're baptized into it. So this sense of I am a lone ranger Christian doing my own thing is foreign to the New Testament. When you become a Christian, you get baptized or joined to a group of people. Why? Because in that community you baptize into that you practice what it means to be a disciple. Let me say that again. It's in that community of people, Jesus says, that you live out in reality and practice what it means to follow me. And Jesus, and we talked, we've, we've come onto this verse many times. Jesus says in John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Can I just say this? Can I just say it real quick? Most people that I meet these days, they don't struggle with the existence of God. You know what they struggle with? They struggle believing the goodness of God. Most people that I meet struggle with, is God, is, good, is he loving? And by the way, if God is love, it's the height of insanity to run from God and search for love. Let me say that again. If God is love, and he is, it is the height of insanity, Christian or not, somebody in here, to run from God and search for love. Let me say it one more time. If God is love, it is the height of insanity to run from God and search for love. Jesus says what? He says the world needs to know that I am a God of love. Well, how, how are they going to know that, Jesus? What does he say? Your life together. But, but can't I individually? No, 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 no. The most powerful way in which people encounter the love of God is by your love for what? One another. So Christian, feel the weight of this. How do you love one another? By dropping in on Sunday here and there. How do you love one another as a consumer? 
How do you love one another by attending a service event here and there? How do you love one another and do all the things that flesh out will love one another means like serve one another, encourage one another, exhort, teach, admonish, confess your sins to? How do you do all those things apart from what? Community. Are you serious about following Jesus? It's not a rhetorical question. Are you serious about following Jesus? Then you can't do it from one another, without one another. So how serious is being in community to you? It's about as serious as saying, I'm serious about following Jesus. Jesus says, if you're serious about following Jesus, then you have to do it in what? That's why discipleship is a communal endeavor, not an individual one. And by the way, can I just mention this? Listen, you guys. If practicing discipleship is done in community, what's the best thing that you can do to someone who says, what does it look like? To practice discipleship is to invite them into what? The community. Invite them into the community so that they can see, not just hear, see what following Jesus actually what looks like. And more than one person. See, this is so counterculture to Western American Christianity. For some of us, we just need to sit with this. And I don't have time to expound all this now. We're going to do it when we talk about following Jesus in community. We don't have time to realize that you don't grow by learning things. You grow by practicing what you learned. You don't grow by learning that God is love. You grow by learning to love someone who is difficult to love. Loving God is not a miracle. Can we all agree to that? He is beautiful. He is amazing. He is wonderful. He, it's loving people that's the miracle. Do you know what it's like when you're loved, when you've blown it? Do you know what it's like when somebody loves you, when you find it difficult to love yourself? Do you know what happens? You encounter the love of God. Lastly, discipleship is a process. Oh, I'm so excited about this. I am so excited about this. Class, are you excited? Sorry. You know, I've always wanted to be a professor. I, uh, I don't think so, Dan. Thank you for being kind. Discipleship is a process. Some of you are going, yeah, yeah, no, kind of know that. No, let me break this down for you. He says, teaching them to obey everything I have taught. And so here I want to end for once and for all. Is evangelism more important than discipleship? Dumb question. Is, 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 is evangelism what we do with non-Christians and discipleship what we do with Christians? Dumb question. Another word for faith in the Bible is belief. And the Bible teaches that all sin comes from not believing the truth about God. 
Romans 14, 22. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Verse 23, everything does not come from faith is sin. So discipleship is the process of moving from, check this out. I don't have very good handwriting, okay? But here it is. Discipleship is the process of moving from belief, B-E-L-I-E-F, yes, okay? Unbelief to belief. Discipleship is the process of moving from unbelief to belief about God, about the gospel over every area of our lives. And there's a passage in the New Testament where Jesus actually talked about what this looks like. It's a very familiar passage to us, but you and I have missed the impact of it. John 8, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, then you're really my disciples. Then he says, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So to Jesus, discipleship, check this out, leads to knowing the truth that sets you free. Discipleship leads to knowing the truth that sets you free. In other words, to Jesus, it starts with discipleship, not evangelism, discipleship, and it continues. We think of evangelism as something that we do with non-Christians. Discipleship is something with the Christians. Evangelism is something that gets people in the door, and the disciple is something we do after. Let me ask you a question. The three years that Jesus spent with his disciples, this is unbelief, disciples, this is belief. When do you think disciples came to believe? Beginning? Read the New Testament. Beginning? Nah, over here? Nah, maybe in the middle? Maybe a little better. Would you say Peter, when he denies knowing Jesus, there? But what is Jesus doing for three years with them? He is what? discipling them this he is what he is inviting those who have yet to believe into what follow me and as you follow me you learn from me learn from truth that ultimately can set you free it's all about what say it with me now, you go, Peter, can you apply this? Yeah, I'll apply it for you. The Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. As I said earlier, we've been created by him and for him. We've been created to be in relationship with him, but we've rebelled against God, Genesis 3, and we've made our own Lord and Savior and taken control of our lives, and the result is bondage to sin, guilt, and shame. Does anybody know what that's like? Bondage to guilt and shame. And Jesus says what? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free jesus is the truth that could set us free from our bondage to sin shame and guilt and here's the thing though there are some people who are at the place of recognizing i am in bondage to sin shame and guilt and i need a savior but i'm gonna tell you something most people that i meet these days that's not their starting point if you like do life with real people they're not coming in going, I'm in bondage to sin, guilt, and shame. I need Jesus. You ever meet people like that? Well, that's, praise God for that, but that's rare. You know, that's rare. Most people are going about their lives 
happy as a clam. They don't know, they don't know the truth and they could care less. So what do you do with them? You what? You disciple them. You invite them into the way of Jesus where they follow him, view you, and see truth that could ultimately set them free. And in the process of following you through Jesus, they then come to see their need for a savior that can set them free from their sin, shame, and guilt. It's all about, say with me, I couldn't wait to share that with you guys. Isn't that powerful? Do you know what else? It makes it doable, doesn't it? It makes it doable because here's the thing. We can't change anybody. All we can do is point people to Jesus because he can. And when people are in relationship with you, they are catching truth from you. God's love, God's goodness, God's radical generosity. It's his loving kindness that leads them to repent. See, what the church has done is we've come and said, I'm going to tell you the truth. You're in bondage to guilt, sin, and shame. So say that sinner's prayer so you can go to heaven. Jesus says, no, no, no. It's discipleship. Invite them. Life on life. Let them see. What you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Isn't that good, CZ? I'm telling you, man, when I came, this is like, wait, it just opened up like this whole thing for me, right? It's like, whoa. So every day, every interaction I have with that barista at Collectivo or Gaslight or New Wave or Intelligentsia or if sent to six, wherever I go, wherever I hang out at, every interaction I have with them or the customer, every little small interaction is what? An opportunity to go, I'm going to invite you into the process of discipleship. And here's the thing, this process doesn't end. In other words, we don't begin this process of unbelieving belief and then once we become Christians, like, whoa, I'm good to go. No, no, no. Because can any one of us, does any one of us struggle with doubt sometimes about who God is and what he's done? Do any one of us struggle with unbelief? Of course we do. So here's the thing. The gospel that saves us is the gospel that grows us. So I'm going to say something that's paradigm shifting. Discipleship is the ongoing process of evangelizing our hearts. What do I mean? Disciples, God, evangelism is essentially declaration of good news, declaring good news. So discipleship is the constant declaring of the good news of who God is and what he has done every day to our hearts. So our hearts are softened and melted to the beauty and truth of who Jesus is. And you go, is that even biblical? Of course it is. Colossians chapter Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. So then just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue. You don't stop and do something else. You continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. You never graduate from the gospel. The gospel that saves you is the gospel that grows you. The truth that takes you from unbelief to belief doesn't end once you become a Christian. The truth that takes you from unbelief to belief is the truth that takes you from unbelief to belief every day until we see Jesus as he is. So uh, uh, I, I was in my staff meeting uh, sharing, you know, this stuff, and, and uh, one of the staff asked me a question. They're like, 
I think the church should hear about some example from you, Peter. I mean, you're preaching. They didn't say it this way, but it's like, you're preaching on it. Maybe some of them are wondering, is he doing this himself? I know y'all wonder. Now, here's the thing, though. I actually hesitated from sharing because I felt a little weird about like, here, let me show you what I got. You know, I'm Korean. It's like, yeah. I felt weird, weird. But then as I thought about it, I'm like, I think it's important for me to share, yeah? So here... If you guys turn the lights off, here is a story of what discipleship has looked like in my life with someone. I was 21 years old when I met Peter, and he had just been hired to help coach the worship teams at North Park University, where I went to school. I was a junior at the time. And I was a worship leader on campus, or at least I was aspiring to be one. And interestingly, I had just that summer, I had been to Korea with our university choir. And so when I met Peter, I was thrilled to learn that he was Korean. And I remember, I was probably embarrassed, but I asked him, I said, do you like Korean food? And he gave me this look that kind of both said, yeah, of course I like Korean food. And who is this crazy white kid? Uh, he may have thought that I was crazy. Uh, he may have been right. Whatever, I didn't care. I was just thrilled to have someone to teach me how to be a worship leader because that's something I really cared about at that time in my life. And Peter did that. He modeled for me how to be a worship leader. He taught me how to plan a worship set. He showed me how to lead a band and how to do the key change at just the right moment so that people really engage in worship. You know. And uh, all of that was amazing, but that's not what left such a lasting impact on my life. I'll never forget the day that I learned what Peter really cared about, and it had nothing to do with me becoming a better worship leader. A few weeks after I had met Peter, he asked me if I wanted to meet up to, to get to know each other better. I said, sure, and so we met up at the Tasty Freeze that was near the corner of Foster Avenue and Kimball Avenue. You won't find it, it's a subway now, but he, he bought me a Coke and, and some French fries, and we just started talking about life. And he kept asking me questions, as Peter does, and, and he was genuinely wanting to know more about who I was. And we talked for an hour or more, and I learned about his life. I, I learned about uh, who he was, and he learned about my life. And I remember vividly, toward the end, he said, you know what? He said, this is what I love, doing life with people, getting to know who they are. I don't know why, but, but that really stuck with me. And perhaps it's because when he said it, I, I really believed him. And as it turns out, it was true. Peter really did care about doing life with me, doing life with other people. He wasn't just sharing his faith and his knowledge with me. He was sharing his life with me, building a relationship with me and investing in me. And for the next nine years, Peter opened up his life to me. I, I traveled with him to Korea uh, to meet his parents. Uh, where his father took me to a, a Korean public bath. 
And that was discipleship in Korean culture. And it was a whole neighborhood of retired Korean men taking a giant steam bath together. Wow, culture shock. It was amazing. And then Anybody want to come later, to Korea with me next Peter time? and Jenny, they even invited me to live in their home, in their basement during those early years of new community as I was working at the church. And, and in those years, Peter modeled for me who Jesus is. I was able to watch him and say, wow, if I ever get married, I want to treat my wife like he treats Jenny. I said, man, what you, the way that he loves Jesus is different than I've ever seen before. I want to love Jesus like he loves Jesus. And like any of us, Peter wasn't perfect, but he let me in to see the broken parts of his life as well. And even there, I could say to myself, wow, when I make a mistake, I want to respond to my mistakes the way that he responds to his mistakes. That's what life on life discipleship looked like for me. And Peter wasn't trying to make a pastor out of me. He didn't know what my assignment in this life was. We were trying to figure that out. He wasn't inviting me to learn how to plant a church or preach a sermon. He was deliberately opening up his life to me, inviting me to know and love Jesus in the same way that he had come to know and love Jesus, challenging me when I sinned and when I made mistakes. But in the midst of those formative years, God really got a hold of me. And it wasn't Peter that I was captivated with. It was Jesus in Peter that captivated me. That's who Peter was showing me. And one of the hardest things that I ever had to do was leave Chicago and walk away from new community. But it was my turn. Just like Jesus had spent all those years doing life with his disciples, and then he said, Okay, now you go out and you do the same thing with other people. God had been using Peter all those years to prepare me to go out and do the same, to do life-on-life -life discipleship with other people, and to advance God's kingdom one person at a time. So seven years ago, my wife and I planted a church here in Boston where we live. All those years of relationship and life together, God had been using Peter to prepare me for people here in Boston that neither he or I had even met yet. And I love that about Christian discipleship. It's lives multiplied. And there will be a day when I'm gone, when, when Peter's gone, but Christ continues to multiply himself through our lives whenever we deliberately open up our lives to the life of another. My life will never be the same because Pastor Peter opened up his life to me and my hope is that I can multiply in others what Peter multiplied in me. We all stand together. Maybe we can just end with a time of prayer. Play. I, I don't know um, how that video sat with you. My, my prayer and my hope wasn't that you would look at that and go, I have to do it exactly like that or I could never do that. Or, 
my prayer throughout this week was that it would spark something in all of us to say, we'll never know the impact that we have, maybe even this side of heaven, and the way that you are modeling Jesus to someone. So in the next minute or two, as we end this service, and I ask you, just to honestly, especially if you're sitting there going, I don't even know where to begin, that you would begin just by praying and saying, Lord, show me what to do. God, I want you to use me, use my hands, use my mouth, use my life, use all that I am for the sake of your kingdom. And that's a prayer that God answers every single time. And for those of you that are in discipleship relationships, whether as a discipler or disciplee, Take this moment for just, just to pray for that relationship. That God would continue to flourish it. God would continue to nurture it. That God would continue to work in that relationship. So that just as iron sharpens iron, you will be conformed to the likeness of Jesus more and more every day. So let me give you a minute to do that. said that to ordinary, uneducated, uncultured, marginalized, small group of people who probably wondered like us, can we do this? And as I commission my brothers and my sisters, Lord, I pray this over them. Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the the one who was forsaken for us so that we never be forsaken, the one who was abandoned for us so that we never be abandoned, says to us today, I am with you in your discouragement. I am with you in your weakness. I am with you when you don't know what to say. I am with you when you don't know what to do. I am with you when you are facing hardship, persecution, suffering. I am with you when you feel like you lack resources. I am with you to the very end of the age. And as we're about to celebrate, your name is Emmanuel, God with us. He goes with you. He goes with you, Christian. May we all be found faithful. Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen.